0: THIS IS SECTION 17 OF HAPPY HOMES AND THE HEARTS THAT MAKE THEM BY SAMUEL SMILES THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN CHAPTER 17 METHODS OF ECONOMY READ BY JOHN GREENMAN THE ONLY TRUE SECRET OF ASSISTING THE POOR IS TO MAKE THEM AGENTS IN BETTERING THEIR OWN CONDITION ARCHBISHOP Sumner. The methods of practicing economy are very simple. Spend less than you earn. That is the first rule. A portion should always be set apart for the future. The person who spends more than he earns is a fool. The civil law regards the spendthrift as akin to the lunatic, and frequently takes from him the management of his own affairs. The next rule is to pay ready money, and never on any account to run in debt. The person who runs in debt is apt to get cheated, and if he runs in debt to any extent, he will himself be apt to get dishonest. Who pays what he owes enriches himself. The next is never to anticipate uncertain profits by expending them before they are secured. The profits may never come, and in that case you will have taken upon yourself a load of debt which you may never get rid of. It will sit upon your shoulders like the old man in sinbad another method of economy is to keep a regular account of all that you earn and of all that you expend an orderly man will know beforehand what he requires and will be provided with the necessary means for obtaining it thus his domestic budget will be balanced and his expenditure kept within his income john wesley regularly adopted this course Although he possessed a small income, he always kept his eyes upon the state of his affairs. A year before his death he wrote, with a trembling hand, in his journal of expenses, For more than eighty-six years I have kept my accounts exactly. I do not care to continue to do so any longer, having the conviction that I economize all that I obtain, and give all that I can, that is to say, all that I have. It is the duty of all persons to economize their means, of the young as well as of the old. The Duke of Sully mentions in his memoirs that nothing contributed more to his fortune than the prudent economy which he practiced, even in his youth, of always preserving some ready money in hand for the purpose of meeting circumstances of emergency. Is a man married? Then the duty of economy is still more binding, his wife and children plead to him most eloquently are they in the event of his early death to be left to buffet with the world unaided the hand of charity is cold the gifts of charity are valueless compared with the gains of industry and the honest savings of frugal labor which carry with them comforts without inflicting any wound upon the feelings of the helpless and bereaved let every man therefore who can endeavor to economize and to save not to hoard but to nurse his little savings for the sake of promoting the welfare and happiness of himself while here and of others when he has departed there is a dignity in the very effort to save with a worthy purpose even though the attempt should not be crowned with eventual success it produces a well-regulated mind it gives prudence a triumph over extravagance it gives virtue the mastery over vice it puts the passions under control it drives away care it secures comfort saved money however little will serve to dry up many a tear will ward off many sorrows and heart-burnings which otherwise might prey upon us possessed of a little store of capital a man walks with a lighter step his heart beats more cheerily when interruption of work or adversity happens he can meet it he can recline on his capital which will either break his fall or prevent it altogether by prudential economy we can realize the dignity of man life will be a blessing and old age an honor we can ultimately under a kind of providence surrender life conscious that we have been no burden upon society but rather perhaps an acquisition and ornament to it conscious also that as we have been independent our children after us by following our example and availing themselves of the means we have left behind us will walk in like manner through the world in happiness and independence every man's first duty is to improve to educate and elevate himself helping forward his brethren at the same time by all reasonable methods each has within himself the capability of free will and free action to a large extent and the fact is proved by the multitude of men who have successfully battled with and overcome the adverse circumstances of life in which they have been placed and who have risen from the lowest depth of poverty and social debasement as if to prove what energetic man resolute of purpose can do for his own elevation progress and advancement in the world is it not a fact that the greatness of humanity the glory of communities the power of nations are the results of trials and difficulties encountered and overcome let a man resolve and determine that he will advance and the first step of advancement is already made the first step is half the battle in the very fact of advancing himself he is in the most effectual possible way advancing others he is giving them the most eloquent of all lessons that of example which teaches far more emphatically than words can teach he is doing what others are by imitation incited to do beginning with himself he is in the most emphatic manner teaching the duty of self-reform and of self-improvement and if the majority of men acted as he did how much wiser how much happier how much more prosperous as a whole would society become for society being made up of units will be happy and prosperous or the reverse exactly in the same degree as the respective individuals who compose it complaints about the inequality of conditions are as old as the world in the economy of Xenophon, socrates asks how is it that some men live in abundance and have something to spare while others can scarcely obtain the necessaries of life and at the same time run into debt the reason is replied Isomachus, because the former occupy themselves with their business while the latter neglect it the difference between men consists for the most part in intelligence conduct and energy the best character never works by chance but is under the influence of virtue prudence and forethought there are of course many failures in the world the man who looks to others for help instead of relying on himself will fail the man who is undergoing the process of perpetual waste will fail the miser the extravagant the thriftless will necessarily fail indeed most people fail because they do not deserve to succeed they set about their work in the wrong way and no amount of experience seems to improve them there is not so much in luck as some people profess to believe. Luck is only another word for good management in practical affairs. Richelieu used to say that he would not continue to employ an unlucky man, in other words, a man wanting in practical qualities and unable to profit by experience. For failures in the past are very often the auguries of failures in the future some of the best and ablest of men are wanting intact they will neither make allowance for circumstances nor adapt themselves to circumstances they will insist on trying to drive the wedge the broad end foremost they raise walls only to run their own heads against they make such great preparations and use such great precautions that they defeat their own object like the dutchman mentioned by washington irving who having to leap a ditch went so far back to have a good run at it that when he came up he was completely winded and had to sit down on the wrong side to recover his breath no idle or thriftless man ever became great it is among those who never lost a moment that we find the men who have moved and advanced the world by their learning their science or their inventions labor of some sort is one of the conditions of existence the thought has come down to us from pagan times that labor is the price which the gods have set upon all that is excellent the thought is also worthy of christian times most men have it in their power by prudent arrangements to defend themselves against adversity and to throw up a barrier against destitution they can do this by their own individual efforts or by acting on the principle of cooperation, which is capable of an almost indefinite extension people of the most humble condition by combining their means and associating together are enabled in many ways to defend themselves against the pressure of poverty to promote their physical well-being and even to advance the progress of the nation a solitary individual may be able to do very little to advance and improve society but when he combines his fellows for the purpose, he can do a very great deal. Civilization itself is but the effect of combining. Mr. Mill has said that almost all the advantages which man possesses over the inferior animals arise from his power of acting in combination with his fellows and of accomplishing, by the united efforts of numbers, what could not be accomplished by the detached efforts of individuals. The secret of social development is to be found in cooperation, and the great question of improved economical and social life can only receive a satisfactory solution through its means. To effect good on a large scale, men must combine their efforts, and the best social system is that in which the organization for the common good is rendered the most complete in all respects the middle classes have accomplished more by the principle of cooperation than the classes who have so much greater need of it all the joint stock companies are the result of association the railways the telegraphs the banks the mines the manufactories have for the most part been established and are carried on by means of the savings of the middle classes the working classes have only begun to employ the same principle yet how much might they accomplish by this means they might cooperate in saving as well as in producing they might by putting their saved earnings together become by combination their own masters within a few years past many millions sterling have been expended in strikes for wages five hundred million dollars a year are thrown away upon drink and other unnecessary articles here is an enormous capital Men who expend or waste such an amount can easily become capitalists. It requires only will, energy, and self-denial. So much money spent on buildings, plant, and steam-engines would enable them to manufacture for themselves instead of for the benefit of individual capitalists. The steam-engine is impartial in its services. It is no respecter of persons. It will work for the benefit of the laborer as well as for the benefit of the millionaire. It will work best for those who make the best use of it, and who have the greatest knowledge of its powers. The greater number of workmen possess little capital save their labor, and, as we have already seen, many of them uselessly and wastefully spend most of their earnings instead of saving them and becoming capitalists by combining in large numbers for the purposes of economical working they might easily become capitalists and operate upon a large scale as society is now constituted every man is not only justified but bound in duty as a citizen to accumulate his earnings by all fair and honorable methods with a view of securing a position of ultimate competence and independence we do not say that men should save and hoard their gains for the mere sake of saving and hoarding that would be parsimony and avarice but we do say that all men ought to aim at accumulating a sufficiency enough to maintain them in comfort during the helpless years that are to come to maintain them in time of sickness and of sorrow and in old age which if it does come ought to find them with a little store of capital in hand sufficient to secure them from dependence upon the charity of others. Workmen are for the most part disposed to associate, but the association is not always of a healthy kind. It sometimes takes the form of unions against masters, and displays itself in the strikes that are so common, and usually so unfortunate. Workmen also strike against men of their own class, for the purpose of excluding them from their special calling one of the principal objects of trades unions is to keep wages at the expense of the lower paid and unassociated working people they endeavor to prevent poor men learning their trade and thus keep the supply of labor below the demand this system may last for a time but it becomes ruinous in the end it is not the want of money that prevents skilled workmen from becoming capitalists and opening the door for the employment of laboring men who are poorer and less skilled than themselves, the working people threw away two and a half millions of dollars during the Preston strike, after which they went back to work at the old terms. The London building trades threw away over one and a half million dollars during their strike, and even had they obtained the terms for which they struck, it would have taken six years to make up for their loss. The colliers in the forest of Dean went back to work at the old terms after eleven weeks' play at the loss of $250,000. The iron-workers of Northumberland and Durham, after spending a third of a year in idleness and losing one million dollars in wages, went back to work at a reduction of 10%. The colliers and iron workers of South Wales during the recent strike were idle for four months, and, according to Lord Aberdair, lost in wages alone, not less than fifteen million dollars. Here, then, is abundance of money within the power of working men, money which they might utilize, but do not. Think only for a solitary million out of the fifteen million dollars which they threw away during the coal strike being devoted to the starting of collieries or iron mills or manufactories to be worked by cooperative operative production for the benefit of the operatives themselves with frugal habits says mr gregg the well-conditioned workman might in ten years easily have five hundred pounds in the bank and combining his savings with twenty other men similarly disposed they might have fifty thousand dollars for the purpose of starting any manufacture in which they are adepts the annual expenditure of the working classes alone on drink and tobacco is not less than 300 million dollars every year therefore the working classes have it in their power to become capitalists simply by saving wasteful and pernicious expenditure to an extent which would enable them to start at least 500 cotton mills or coal mines or ironworks on their own account or to purchase at least 500,000 acres and so set up 50,000 families each with a nice little estate of their own of 10 acres on fee simple no one can dispute the facts no one can deny the inference that this is not an impracticable scheme is capable of being easily proved the practice of cooperation has long been adopted by working people throughout england a large proportion of the fishery industry has been conducted on that principle for hundreds of years. Fishermen join in building, rigging, and manning a boat. The proceeds of the fish they catch at sea is divided among them, so much to the boat, so much to the fishermen. The company of oyster-dredgers of Whitstable has existed time out of mind, though it was only in 1793 that they were incorporated by Act of Parliament. The tin-miners of Cornwall have also acted on the same principle. They have mined, washed, and sold the tin, dividing the proceeds among themselves in certain proportions, most probably from the time that the Phoenicians carried away the produce to their ports in the Mediterranean. In our own time cooperation has been practiced to a considerable extent. In 1795 the Hull Anti-Mill Industrial Society was founded the reasons for its association are explained in the petition addressed to the mayor and aldermen of hull by the first members of the society the petition begins thus we the poor inhabitants of the said town have lately experienced much trouble and sorrow in ourselves and families on the occasion of the exorbitant price of flour and though the price is much reduced at present yet we judge it needful to take every precaution to preserve ourselves from the invasions of covetous and merciless men in the future they accordingly entered into a subscription to build a mill in order to supply themselves with flour the corporation granted their petition and supported them by liberal donations the mill was built and exists to this day it now consists of more than four thousand members each holding a share of twenty-five shillings the members belong principally to the laboring classes the millers endeavored by action at law to put down the society but the attempt was successfully resisted the society manufactures flour and sells it to the members at market price dividing the profits annually among the shareholders according to the quantity consumed in each member's family the society has proved eminently remunerative many years passed before the example of the poor inhabitants of hull was followed it was only in eighteen forty seven that the co-operators of leeds purchased a flour mill and in eighteen fifty that those of rockdale did the same since which time they have manufactured flour for the benefit of their members the corn millers of leeds attempted to undersell the leeds industrial society they soon failed and the price of flour was permanently reduced the leeds mill does business amounting to more than half a million dollars yearly its capital amounts to a hundred and ten thousand dollars and it paid more than eight thousand pounds of profits and bonuses to its three thousand six hundred members in eighteen sixty six besides supplying them with flour of the best quality the rockdale district cooperatives corn mill society has also been eminently successful it supplies flour to consumers residing within a radius of about fifteen miles around Rockdale. It also supplies flour to sixty-two cooperative societies numbering over 12,000 members. Its business in 1866 amounted to $1,120,000 and its profits to over $90,000. The Rockdale corn mill grew out of the Rockdale Equitable Pioneer Society which formed an epoch in the history of industrial-cooperative institutions. The Equitable Pioneer Society was established in the year 1844, at a time when trade was in a very bad condition, and working people generally were heartless and hopeless as to their future state. Some twenty-eight or thirty men, mostly flannel-weavers, met and formed themselves into a society for the purpose of economizing their hard-won earnings. It is pretty well known that working men generally pay at least 10% more for the articles they consume than they need to under a sounder system. Professor Fawcett estimates their loss at nearer 20% than 10%. At all events, these working men wish to save this amount of profit which before went into the pockets of the distributors of the necessaries, in other words into the pockets of the shopkeepers the weekly subscription was two pence each and when about fifty-two calls of two pence each had been made they found that they were able to buy a sack of oatmeal which they distributed at cost price among the members of the society the number of members grew and the subscription so increased that the society was enabled to buy tea sugar and other articles and distribute them among the members at cost price they superseded the shopkeepers and became their own tradesmen they insisted from the first on payments in cash no credit was given the society grew it established a store for the sale of food firing clothes and other necessaries in a few years the members set on foot the co-operative corn-mill they increased the capital by the issue of one pound shares and began to make and sell clothes and shoes they also sold drapery but the principal trade consisted in the purchase and sale of provisions butchers meat groceries flour and such-like notwithstanding the great distress during the period of the cotton famine the society continued to prosper from the first it set apart a portion of its funds for educational purposes and established a newsroom and a library which now contains over six thousand volumes the society continued to increase until it possessed eleven branches for the sale of goods and stores in or near rockdale besides the original office in toad lane at the end of eighteen sixty six it had six thousand two hundred and forty six members and a capital of four hundred and ninety nine thousand five hundred and forty dollars its income for goods sold and cash received during the year was one million two hundred and forty five thousand six hundred and ten dollars and the gross profit $159,655. But this was not all. Two and a half percent were appropriated for the net profits to support the newsrooms and library, and there are now eleven news and reading rooms at different places in or near the town where the society carries on its business. The sum devoted to this object amounting to over seven hundred pounds per annum the members play at chess and draughts and use the stereoscopic views microscopes and telescopes placed in the libraries no special arrangements have been made to promote temperance but the newsroom and library exercise a powerful and beneficial influence in promoting sobriety it has been said that the society has done more to remove drunkenness from rockdale than all that the advocates of temperance have been able to effect the example of the Rockdale pioneers has exercised a powerful influence on working men throughout the northern counties of England. There is scarcely a town or village, but has a cooperative institution of one kind or another. These societies have promoted habits of saving, of thrift, and of temperance. They have given the people an interest in money matters, and enabled them to lay out their earnings to the best advantage they have also given the working people some knowledge of business for the whole of their concerns are managed by committees selected at the general meetings of the members one of the most flourishing co-operative societies is that established at over darwin the society has erected a row of handsome buildings in the centre of the town the shops for the sale of provisions groceries clothing and other necessaries occupy the lower story over the shops are the library, reading-rooms, and classrooms, which are open to the members and their families. The third story consists of a large public hall, which is used for lectures, concerts, and dances. There are six branches of the society established in different parts of the town. A large amount of business is done, and the profits are very considerable. These are divided among the members in proportion to the purchases made by them. The profits are for the most part reinvested in joint-stock paper mills, cotton mills, and collieries in the neighborhood of Darwin. One of the most praiseworthy features of the society is the provision made for the free education of the members and their families. Two and a half percent of the profits are appropriated for the purpose. While inspecting the institution a few months ago, we were informed that the science classes were so efficiently conducted that one of the pupils had just obtained a government scholarship of fifty pounds a year for three years including free instruction at a school of mines with a free use of the laboratories during that period there are also two other cooperative institutions in the same place and we were informed that the working people of darwin are for the most part hard-working sober and thrifty the sole secret of its success consists in ready money. It gives no credit. Everything is done for cash, the profit of the trade being divided among the members. Every businessman knows that cash payment is the soundest method of conducting business. The Rockdale pioneers, having discovered the secret, have spread it among their class. In their advice to members of this and other societies, they say, look well after money matters buy your goods as much as possible in the first markets or if you have the produce of your industry to sell contrive if possible to sell it in the last never depart from the principle of buying and selling for ready money beware of long reckonings in short the co-operative societies became tradesmen on a large scale and besides the pureness of the food sold their profit consisted in the discount for cash payments which was divided among their members land and building societies constitute another form of cooperation. by their means portions of land are bought and dwelling-houses are built by means of a building society a person who desires to possess a house enters the society as a member and instead of paying his rent to the landlord pays his subscriptions and interest to a committee of his friends and in course of time when his subscriptions are paid up the house is purchased and conveyed to him by the society the building society is thus a savings bank where money accumulates for a certain purpose but even those who do not purchase a house receive a dividend and bonus on their shares which sometimes amount to a considerable sum the accumulation of property has the effect which it always has upon thrifty men, it makes them steady, sober, and diligent. It weans them from revolutionary notions, and makes them conservative. When workmen, by their industry and frugality, have secured their own independence, they will cease to regard the sight of others' well-being as a wrong inflicted on themselves and it will no longer be possible to make political capital out of their imaginary woes. It is said that there is a skeleton in every household. The skeleton is locked up, put away in a cupboard, and rarely seen. Only the people inside the house know of its existence, but the skeleton nevertheless cannot long be concealed. It comes to light in some way or another. The most common skeleton is poverty. Poverty says douglas gerald is the great secret kept at any pains by one half of the world from the other half When there is nothing laid by Nothing saved to relieve sickness when it comes Nothing to alleviate the wants of old age then is the skeleton hidden away in many a cupboard in a country such as this where business is often brought to a standstill by over trading and over speculation many masters clerks and workpeople are thrown out of employment they must wait until better times come round but in the meantime how are they to live if they have accumulated no savings and have nothing laid by they are comparatively destitute it often happens that workmen lose their employment in bad times mercantile concerns become bankrupt clerks are paid off and servants are dismissed when their masters can no longer employ them. If the disemployed people have been in the habit of regularly consuming all their salaries and wages without laying anything by, their case is the most pitiable that can be imagined. But if they have saved something, at home or in the savings bank, they will be enabled to break their fall. They will obtain some breathing time before they again fall into employment. Suppose they have as much as fifty dollars saved. It may seem a very little sum, yet, in distress, it amounts to much. It may even prove a man's passport to future independence. We do not value money for its own sake, and we should be the last to encourage a miserly desire to hoard among any class, but we cannot help recognizing in money the means of life, the means of comfort, the means of maintaining an honest independence. We would, therefore, recommend every young man and every young woman to begin life by learning to save, to lay up for the future a certain portion of every week's earnings, be it little or much, to avoid consuming every week or every year the earnings of that week or year, and we counsel them to do this as they would avoid the horrors of dependence, destitution, or beggary we would have men and women of every class able to help themselves relying upon their own resources upon their own savings for it is a true saying that a penny in the purse is better than a friend at court the first penny saved is a step in the world the fact of its being saved and laid by indicates self-denial forethought prudence wisdom it may be the germ of future happiness it may be the beginning of independence it is not the highly paid class of working men and women who invest money in the savings banks but those who earn comparatively moderate incomes thus the most numerous class of depositors in the manchester and salford savings bank is that of domestic servants after them rank clerks shopmen porters and miners only about a third part of the deposits belongs to the operatives artisans and mechanics it is the same in manufacturing districts generally a few years since it was found that of the numerous female depositors at dundee only one was a factory worker the rest were for the most part servants there is another fact that is remarkable the habit of saving does not so much prevail in those counties where wages are the highest as in those counties where wages are the lowest previous to the era of post office savings banks the inhabitants of wilts and dorset where wages are about the lowest in england deposited more money in the savings banks per head of the population than they did in lancashire and yorkshire where wages are about the highest in england Taking Yorkshire itself, and dividing it into manufacturing and agricultural, the manufacturing inhabitants of the West Riding of York invested about twenty-five shillings per head of the population in the savings banks, while the agricultural population of the East Riding invested about three times that amount. A magistrate at Bilston, not connected with the employment of workmen, has mentioned the following case. I prevailed, he says, upon a workman to begin a deposit in the savings bank. He came most unwillingly. His deposits were small, although I knew his gains to be great. I encouraged him by expressing satisfaction at the course he was taking. His deposits became greater, and at the end of five years he drew out the fund he had accumulated, bought a piece of land, and has built a house upon it i think if i had not spoken to him the whole amount would have been spent in feasting or clubs or contributions to the trades unions that man's eyes are now open his social position is raised he sees and feels as we do and will influence others to follow his example from what we have said it will be obvious that there can be no doubt as to the ability of a large proportion of the better-paid classes of workingmen to lay by a store of savings when they set their minds upon any subject they have no difficulty in finding the requisite money a single town in lancashire contributed a hundred and fifty thousand dollars to support their fellow-workmen when on a strike in an adjoining town at a time when there are no strikes, why should they not save as much money on their own account for their own permanent comfort? Many workmen already save with this object, and what they do, all might do. We know of one large mechanical establishment situated in an agricultural district where the temptations to useless expenditure are few, in which nearly all the men are habitual economists and have saved sums varying from one thousand dollars to $2,500 each. Many factory operatives, with their families, might easily lay by from five to ten shillings a week, which in a few years would amount to considerable sums. At Darwin, only a short time ago, an operative drew his savings out of the bank to purchase a row of cottages, now become his property many others in the same place and in the neighboring towns are engaged in building cottages for themselves some by means of their contributions to building societies and others by means of their savings accumulated in the bank a respectably dressed working man when making a payment one day at the bradford savings bank which brought his account up to nearly eighty pounds informed the manager how it was that he had been induced to become a depositor he had been a drinker, but one day, accidentally finding his wife's savings-bank deposit book, from which he learned that she had laid by about one hundred dollars, he said to himself, "'Well, now, if this can be done while I am spending, what might we do if both were saving?' The man gave up his drinking, and became one of the most respectable persons of his class. "'I owe it all,' he said, "'to my wife and the savings-bank.' The penny bank reaches a class of persons of very small means whose ability to save is much less than that of the highly paid workmen, and who, if the money were left in their pockets, would in most cases spend it in the nearest public house. When a penny bank was established at Putney, and the deposits were added up at the end of the first year, a brewer who was on the committee made the remark, Well, that represents thirty thousand pints of beer not drunk. But the principal supporters of the penny-banks are boys, and this is their most hopeful feature, for it is out of boys that men are made. At Huddersfield many of the lads go in bands from the mills to the penny-banks. Emulation is well as an example, urging them on. They save for various purposes, one to buy a chest of tools, another a watch, a third a grammar or a dictionary. Thus these institutions give help and strength in many ways, and besides enabling young people to keep out of debt and honestly to pay their way, furnish them with the means of performing kindly and generous acts in times of family trial and emergency. It is an admirable feature of the ragged schools that almost every one of them has a penny bank connected with it, for the purpose of training the scholars in good habits which they most need and it is a remarkable fact that in one year not less than forty-four thousand dollars was deposited in twenty-five thousand six hundred and thirty-seven sums by the scholars connected with the ragged school union and when this can be done by the poor boys of the ragged schools what might not be accomplished by the highly paid operatives and mechanics of england but another capital feature in the working of penny banks as regards the cultivation of prudent habits among the people is the circumstance that the example of boys and girls depositing their spare weekly pennies has often the effect of drawing their parents after them a boy goes on for weeks paying his pence and taking home his pass-book the book shows that he has a ledger folio at the bank expressly devoted to him that his pennies are all duly entered together with the respective dates of their deposits that these savings are not lying idle but bear interest at two and a half per cent per annum and that he can have them restored to him at any time if under twenty shillings without notice and if above twenty shillings then after a week's notice has been given the book is a little history in itself and cannot fail to be interesting to the boy's brothers and sisters as well as to his parents. They call him good boy, and they see he is a well-conducted boy. The father, if he is a sensible man, naturally bethinks him that, if his boy can do so creditable a thing, worthy of praise, so might he himself. Accordingly on the next Saturday night, when the boy goes to deposit his threepence at the penny-bank, the father often sends his shilling thus a good beginning is often made and a habit initiated which if persevered in very shortly exercises a most salutary influence on the entire domestic condition of the family the observant mother is quick to observe the effects of this new practice upon the happiness of the home and in course of time as the younger children grow up and earn money she encourages them to follow the elder boy's example she herself takes them by the hand leads them to the penny bank and accustoms them to invest their savings there women have even more influence in such matters than men and where they exercise it the beneficial effects are much more lasting one evening a strong muscular mechanic appeared at the bradford savings bank in his working dress bringing with him three children one of them in his arms he placed on the counter their deposit-books which his wife had previously been accustomed to present together with ten shillings to be equally appropriated among the three pressing to his bosom the child in his arms the man said poor things they have lost their mother since they were here last but i must do the best i can for them and he continued the good lesson to his children which his wife had begun bringing them with him each time to see their little deposits made. There is an old English proverb which says, He that would thrive must first ask his wife, but the wife must not only let her husband thrive, but help him, otherwise she is not the helpmeet which is as needful for the domestic comfort and satisfaction of the working man as of every other man who undertakes the responsibility of a family. Women form the moral atmosphere in which we grow when children, and they have a great deal to do with the life when we become men. It is true that the men may hold the reins, but it is generally the women who tell them which way to drive. What Rousseau said is very near the truth. Men will always be what women make them neglect of small things is the rock on which the great majority of the human race have split human life consists of a succession of small events each of which is comparatively unimportant and yet the happiness and success of every man depend upon the manner in which these small events are dealt with character is built up on little things little things well and honourably transacted the success of a man in business depends on his attention to little things the comfort of a household is the result of small things well arranged and duly provided for good government can only be accomplished in the same way by well-regulated provision for the doing of little things accumulations of knowledge and experience of the most valuable kind are the result of little bits of knowledge and experience carefully treasured up those who learn nothing, or accumulate nothing in life, are set down as failures, because they have neglected little things. They may themselves consider that the world has gone against them, but in fact they have been their own enemies. There has long been a popular belief in good luck, but, like many other popular notions, it is gradually giving way. The conviction is extending that diligence is the mother of good luck. In other words, that a man's success in life will be proportionate to his efforts, to his industry, to his attention to small things. Your negligent, shiftless, loose fellows never meet with luck, because the results of industry are denied to those who will not use the proper efforts to secure them. It is not luck, but labor that makes men. Luck is ever waiting for something to turn up labor with keen eye and strong will always turns up something luck lies in bed and wishes the postman would bring him news of a legacy labor turns out at six and with busy pen or ringing hammer lays the foundation of a competence luck whines labor whistles luck relies on chance labor on character luck slips downward to self-indulgence labor strides upward and aspires to independence there are many little things in the household attention to which is indispensable to health and happiness cleanliness consists in attention to a number of apparent trifles the scrubbing of a floor the dusting of a chair the cleansing of a teacup but the general result of the whole is an atmosphere of moral and physical well-being a condition favorable to the highest growth of human character the kind of air which circulates in a house may seem a small matter for we can not see the air and few people know anything about it yet if we do not provide a regular supply of pure air within our houses we shall inevitably suffer for our neglect a few specks of dirt may seem unimportant and a closed door or window would appear to make little difference but it may make the difference of a life destroyed by fever and therefore the little dirt and the little bad air are really very serious matters the whole of the household regulations are taken by themselves trifles but trifles tending to important results a man may work hard and earn high wages but if he allow the pennies which are the result of hard work to slip out of his fingers some going to the beer-shop some this way and some that he will find that his life of hard work is little raised above a life of animal drudgery on the other hand if he take care of the pennies putting some weekly into a benefit society or an insurance fund others into a savings bank and confide the rest to his wife to be carefully laid out with a view to the comfortable maintenance and culture of his family he will soon find that his attention to small matters will abundantly repay him in increasing means in comfort at home and in a mind comparatively free from fears as to the future if a man does not know how to save his pennies or his pounds his nose will always be kept to the grindstone. Want may come upon him any day like an armed man. Careful saving acts like magic. Once begun, it grows into a habit. It gives a man a feeling of satisfaction, of strength, of security. The pennies he has put aside in his savings box or in the savings bank give him an assurance of comfort in sickness or of rest in old age the man who saves has something to weather-fend him against want while the man who saves not has nothing between him and bitter biting poverty a man may be disposed to save money and lay it by for sickness or for other purposes but he cannot do this unless his wife lets him or helps him a prudent frugal thrifty woman is a crown of glory to her husband she helps him in all his good resolutions she may by quiet and gentle encouragement bring out his better qualities and by her example she may implant in him noble principles which are the seeds of the highest practical virtues a man's daily life is the best test of his moral and social state take two men for instance both working at the same trade and earning the same money Yet how different they may be as respects their actual condition. The one looks a free man, the other a slave. The one lives in a snug cottage, the other in a mud hovel. The one has always a decent coat to his back, the other is in rags. The children of the one are clean, well-dressed, and at school. The children of the other are dirty, filthy, and often in the gutter. The one possesses the ordinary comforts of life, as well as many of its pleasures and conveniences, perhaps a well-chosen library. The other has few of the comforts of life, certainly no pleasures, enjoyments, nor books. And yet these two men earn the same wages. What is the cause of the difference between them? It is this. The one man is intelligent and prudent, the other is the reverse. The one denies himself for the benefit of his wife, his family, and his home. The other denies himself nothing, but lives under the tyranny of evil habits. The one is a sober man and takes pleasure in making his home attractive and his family comfortable. The other cares nothing for his home and family, but spends the greater part of his earnings in the gin-shop or the public-house. The one man looks up, the other looks down the standard of enjoyment of the one is high, and of the other low. The one man likes books, which instruct and elevate his mind. The other likes drink, which tends to lower and brutalize him. The one saves his money, the other wastes it. End of chapter 17. Methods of Economy. Read by John Greenman.